Welcome back, vinylers and vinylettes, and welcome to Aberdeen Vinyl Records Podcast. Thank you so much for all your comments and all your feedback. It's helped make this show into the world-famous, multi-award-winning show that it isn't. On today's show, we're very lucky indeed to have one of the finest musicians ever to come out of Ireland. He's a magnificent bass player, ten times the guitar player I'll ever be. He doesn't even play the guitar. (laughs) (laughs) But he could if he wanted to. I'd be surprised if he couldn't do the drums and everything. He's such a musical spirit, and it's an absolute privilege to know him. I'm delighted he's agreed to come on our show. This guy's worked with everybody from Rory Gallagher through to Eric Bell from Thin Lizzy, Henry McCulloch, and so many other names I could add. Horse Slips. Jeez, I don't know where to. I don't know where to end that. I'll just be talking the whole time, telling you all the people he's played with. Next guest is also an author, and Netflix have made a documentary film about his story, which is very important for you to check out at some stage. This gentleman has also done an enormous amount of humanitarian and educational work, which is now his great, great passion. So it's our absolute privilege to welcome the one and only Stephen Travers. This man's backdrop. And didn't I tell you this is Stephen's favourite record before? Look, the rock machine turns you on. Brilliant. (laughs) How you doing, Stephen? Can you hear us okay? Yeah, I can hear you fine. I I said to Lee before, remember, we got a copy of that record. Yeah, yeah. It was a damaged copy. That's right. And I said, this is a shame because this is Stephen's favourite record. It's such a shame it's not in good condition when we just sent it. And there you are right behind him. Unbelievable. The rock machine turns you on. How about that? Brilliant. So, Stephen... No, I was just going to say, I, I, uh, it, it, it was it was like a massive influence, you know, that, and I, I, I'd like to see people come out with more of those albums because sampler albums like that, that yeah, maybe they do, but that was the one. There was a few. Uh, we certainly, when we were buying in record collections, we, um, samplers are quite often ones that, uh, unexcite you because they don't go for big money. Uh, so, uh, but if you're buying any record collections, you can't afford to think like that. You've got to just buy everything that's good. So sometimes we see that record there and we think, okay, it's not going to get a lot of money, mm-hmm. but we just know the music on it is so good oh, that yeah. anybody who's, it's a great one to preach to people about. Yeah. Right? You've heard me preach about this record. Oh, yes. Time. So I, on his knees. And it uh, <laughs> introduces, it does the job of a sampler, mm-hmm. it introduces people to bands they would never normally have heard of. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I think you need more of that, like, because otherwise you don't really get the opportunity anymore to listen to loads of new bands, I suppose. Um, everything's gone digital. This seems to be a topic we keep coming back to, how everything's gone digital and people get lazy. You can go on and choose one specific song and then skip to somebody else or, you know, but people don't listen to full albums as much as they used to anymore. Well, uh, I, the, the classic sound of the gold top, um, what's his name's gold top uh, on the Killing Floor. Do you remember that band, uh, Electric Flag? Electric yeah. Flag. Yeah, the uh, the Killing Floor. The, the sound of the of of that gold top that he used. Um, what's his name? Um, 
Paul just, Butterfield? Just, Paul Butterfield. No, well, he played with Paul Butterfield. Um, Mike, the, Mike Bloomfield? Mike, Mike Bloomfield, yeah. Uh, and, and, and the driving base um, was just phenomenal. It, 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 that album introduces to so many people, people that you wouldn't, you'd, you'd never think of, you know, um, Moby Grape, I suppose, but yep. people like uh, um, Randy California with uh, when, when with his band uh, yep. Spirit. Yes. Bands like that that were just, I mean, some of them we knew are Simon and Garfunkel and Dylan yeah. and that, but yeah. it was just a phenomenal album. That was. I guess that, that's what a sampler does. It gives you a couple of big names that everybody buys it for and then they listen to the rest to see what it's all about. Yeah, I think the other thing about it is it is on CBS. So um, that was a time when, when these uh, record companies were actually signing good acts. Yes, yes. Yes. And of course, talking of good acts, there's always uh, the Miami show band. Well, I, I don't think they ever recorded anything like spectacular uh, other than, you know, there's a couple of tracks, but um, it was mainly uh, a vehicle. They were never given enough time. Fran's album was good, but it was very pop. It was sort of... Uh, yeah. Fran, uh, Fran was the lead singer, wasn't he? Yeah. he was. He, but behind it all, he was a great, great... Um, keyboard great jazz keyboard player and uh very very into funky fabulous voice tony garrity was the, is the unsung hero he was i mean when he, he came from the heaviest of the heaviest bands in ireland he was with a band called even the name adolf j rag adolf j rag you yeah. kidding me that wow. was the name of the band it was the name of the band yeah and when you consider that Gary Moore never ever missed a gig that they were playing when Gary Moore was in town, he always and Rory Gallagher gave him his AC30. He admired his playing so much. Was that right? Oh, so Rory what? Gallagher gave him his amplifier. Yeah, he gave him the AC30. Yeah, yeah. And, and and that's still in Dublin. Uh, uh, Tony gave it to his student, uh, a star student, a guy called Jerry Hendrick, and Jerry Hendrick was was Tony's fiance's. Uh, brother, young kid brother, and he's now known as Ireland's Jeff Beck. Really? Wow! Yeah, wow! Yeah. So all, all roads come back to that. Come uh, all come back to that period. So, Stephen, what got you into the bass? I mean, obviously, you're passionate about the bass, and I've read your book, obviously. And what really strikes me is just your absolute captivation with that instrument. Okay, well, uh, with regard to the bass, um, I come from a small uh, market town called Carrick and Shore in South Tipperary, uh, and they had three passions. Uh, um, one was hurling, you know, the uh, hurling, obviously, because it's South Tipperary on the borders of, of, of Kilkenny and Waterford. It's half the town is in Waterford nearly. So the hurling was a big, big thing, but music, it kind of punched, well, punched above its weight. There was only 4,000 people in the in the in the town when I was growing up, and they had um, produced the probably the biggest folk group in the world at the time, the Clancy Brothers, um, and Tommy Makem. I yeah. always have to mention Tommy Makem because uh, we got a little bit of help from him. Yeah. But the Clancy Brothers, uh, and then of course you know the Clancys when they kind of retired. Um, Liam Clancy and Tommy Makem, they're just world beaters. But they they were very lucky. They got they were on coast to coast in America. And they were um, when they lived in New York, they were very friendly with Bob Dylan. So oh. D- Dylan actually took a lot of their stuff and um, and sort of repackaged it. Uh, so so there was this interaction. Great. 
uh, interaction between... Uh, what what between, year was that, Stephen? Well, that, would be, that would be the late 50s. Before Dylan... Late 50s, they went, maybe, and then Dylan started to make it then. Yeah. But uh, in Dylan's uh, um, autobiography, he, he says that Liam Clancy, one of the Clancy brothers, is... Uh, the uh, the greatest ballad singer he ever heard. Uh, wow, so, uh, that's a statement. Wow, yeah. Uh, You've just yeah. added a fiver onto the value of every Clancy record that we've got. Instantly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I remember uh, the lad that I sat beside in school, Robbie O'Connell. He's quite a big name in, in folk music in America now, but. Um, Whenever it would rain, it's raining here in Cork today. So whenever it would rain, uh, the leader of the Clancy brothers, Paddy Clancy, because they were his uncles, they were Robbie's uncles. So he would come in and pick us up from school and bring us home, you know, uh, um, in, in the car. So we had this, we had this, uh, almost we took the music for granted. But more than that, we took the success for granted because every parent in in, in caricature um, bought a kid uh, a guitar for Christmas around, you know, when, when because thinking that they probably produce another Clancy Brothers. Uh, so uh, it was, a, it was a, a wise investment. Uh, and there was a, a, a lot of great, great players. Dave Prim, for me, would have been, you know, world class. And I often mentioned to Bob, there's a lad called uh, um, Gay Brazel, Gabriel was his name, Gay Brazel. Uh, and his album is called. He's a, he's a fabulous country player as well as everything else. Plays lovely dobro and um, uh, mandolin, that type of thing. But he's world class as well. I often say that he he made a, an album called Hidden Charm, harmless name, but it's it's the test piece for any young guitar player to play. You know, to 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 take up. He he's very friendly with. Um, people like Albert Lee and he is that style, you know, so it's interesting. Yeah. So they had about a year, two years ahead of me on guitar. They had, they had taken it up and I played guitar as well, but there was something wrong, you know, when it didn't feel right when I was, you know, when I was playing guitar and I, of course, you know, we, we played all the Beatles songs and anything that was happening at the time, the Kings and the Stones. And, but, um, even though my technique was good um, and I could fly around the place, um, uh, there was something just, it, it wasn't right. I didn't feel it was right. Uh, and um, so one day there was this uh, young friend, a uh, friend of mine lived a couple of doors down and he knocked on my door and he, I knew he had a band, uh, a little beat group called The Web, way ahead of their time, way ahead of the internet. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Noel Kelly was his name. He's now in Australia. But uh, Noel knocked on the door and he said, uh, he said, uh, do you fancy playing in the band, um, playing bass? Uh, you know, I'd, I'd never even considered playing bass. And uh, he said, well, he said, we need a, a, a bass player. And um, if you want to give it a go. So I said, well, I don't have a bass. And he said, well, our, the guy that's leaving the band, who had a very groovy name, actually, Chelsea Power. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chelsea Power. Totally. That's yeah. a film star. It right? really is, like, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think his his real name was Chelsea, but he's, he's, everybody in in around Waterford and Carrick and Shore was called Power. That's a very common name. So, but he, maybe he was a football fan or something. But 
Yeah, and he certainly made a, a better fist of football than he did of the base. So <laughs> yeah. I went, uh, 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 So they said he said he was going to sell the base um, for the princely sum of five quid. Uh, did they not imagine, go halves with you on it? Well, um, the, Chelsea wanted to get rid of it. The band said they'd pay half if my dad paid the other half, and my dad had never heard of a bass guitar in his life. <laughs> He was, he was a big, he was a big classical fan, you know. Mm-hmm. He, would, he he often spoke about the bull fiddle and all this kind of thing, but never about the bass guitar. And so I said, give it a go, and and um, so got the two pounds fifty or two pounds ten shillings at the time. I went down to Chelsea's door, knocked on the door, and he couldn't wait to hand it to me. And um, the minute he handed it to me, uh, I have often said it, it was like somebody plugged me into the universe. It was oh. just, uh, it's just, this thing just happened. And uh, I ran home and there was no case. Uh, and it was a, a dreadful plank of wood. It'd be probably better off paddling a boat or playing cricket. <laughs> you know, it, uh, it had, um, you had to use, it was tiny little machine heads on top. It was called an Egmont uh, Scout base. And uh, sometimes you had to get a pliers to tune it, you know, with the, at the, at the top. <laughs> I always remember the creak, you know, the creak when you tried to. Uh, I, I loved it, uh, um, and uh, so I would put it on the uh, on the chair across the table when I was having my lunch. I'd run home from school and put it on the chair, and I'd be eating my lunch, and I'd be just staring at this thing. Oh man, I know exactly what you mean. I don't know, maybe it was some kind of an intuition, uh, but I started to play it and what I was playing was total, total, absolute nonsense. Uh, <laughs> I, I started playing with the lads and, and doing the, uh, playing with the web down in, 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 there was a gig on every Sunday in a place called the Foresters Hall in Carrick and Shore. Of this lady, her name was Mrs. Carton, and she was running a gig, and it was apparently to build a swimming pool in the town. Yeah. The swimming pool never got built, uh, <laughs> uh, but either, either way, we used to play, and it was packed. You'd have a couple of hundred kids there every every Sunday afternoon from three until six. And um, I remember knowing what I should play, uh, but... Uh, Whatever way I was doing it, it was it was sounding really, really strange and weird. And uh, so I struggled through it and I didn't have an amplifier. Now, at the time we had, we used to hire a little PA system from a guy called Petey Walsh. Petey was a baker and... Um, but he had this small PA system. And I, I'm talking small. I mean, the two speakers uh, were like two pigeon boxes, you know, on either <laughs> side of the... And a Vortexian amplifier, which is like the most dangerous amp ever. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, uh, um, it, it was totally, completely metal. And the handles were metal. Yes. So we, we used to... Um, the guitar player was a lad called Bear Griffin. So uh, <laughs> another film star, <laughs> totally. Another wonderful, and uh, so he had an amplifier. So we would take off the plug off the Vortexian and take off the plug from his uh, uh, amp and wrap the wires around each other and stick them into the wall with matches. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> 
Oh my god. That's rock and roll. That, that is, is rock and roll. <laughs> Many it's a time definitely mob styled. <laughs> <laughs> so often we were got a belt and knocked from one side of the, the, the stage to the other, you know. With a, <laughs> god uh, oh my god. But Probably one wasn't enough for you to to, to be deterred, no. <laughs> and 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 then the you know somebody uh, uh, the drummer, first drummer we had I think was he was an aspiring electrician and he came up with the great idea. Well, you know what? Take off the earth and we'll get rid of the hum. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> That's genius. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or wrap it around the neutral. That was another trick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Great electrician yeah, I, then. Oh man! I, I don't good. think health, health and safety came into it at the time. You know. No. What, what uh, age were you? What age were you then, Stephen? Uh, fifteen. I was fifteen. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, fifteen yeah. going on four. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, um, so not having an amplifier was a bit of a problem for a bass pair. So I would plug into the PA Vortexian amp and it was it was driving so hard that the little pigeon boxes hanging on the wall were jumping around the wall uh, uh, <laughs> with low frequencies. Oh, jeez. Um, what, was the, we, what was the sound like? Well, we thought it was wonderful. In fact, we thought that we thought the uh, um, that the, the Rolling Stones were quaking in their boots. Watch <laughs> <laughs> because, because the lead singer was he thought he was Mick Jagger's smarter brother. You know, he was doing all the uh, all this um, all the Stones heads, but. Um, it was very progressive in its outlook, the band. I mean, we're doing really good stuff, you know, the Stones, Kings, the, uh, we're doing a lot of uh, Yardbirds. Um, and there was there was loads and loads of bands. Um, but on on those gigs, on uh, when we were hiring the, the PA system from, from Petey, we had a lookout who would watch, because Petey would always come down maybe 15 minutes before the, uh, the gig was over to pick up his PA system. And 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 the, the lookout would run in and tell me, and I would unplug from the from from the vortexy and and sort of mime and then, but nobody knew the difference. It was like probably better when I stopped playing. You know? <laughs> but there was there was other bands uh, in town. There was a guy called Dave Prim who I mentioned earlier. He died last year. Uh, this guy is just a phenomenal player. He's he was. Um, uh, I remember when he, he he joined a band. He was very uh, impetuous kind of guy. Um, looked a bit like Jeff Beck, and pl certainly played like him. He was uh, he joined a band called Chicken Fisher at one stage early in his life, and went out to uh, after two weeks, uh, never playing jazz. He got best newcomer in the in the uh, Montreux uh, Montreux Jazz Festival. Amazing. That, wow. That's the, the the level of so. Um, but when I when I started to play the bass, I, I realized that what I had been playing on guitar was actually bass. That, that mm. that's what I was doing. That's the way I was thinking, and it made far more sense on bass when I when I when I started to to do that. Amazing. And um, I, I started to play with Dave Prem. Dave Prem, uh, we all sort of gravitated towards each other, and. Um, and I I got very very into the blues. Uh, I remember the first blues number I ever played. I think it was King B, um, and 
this is your standard blues, but it was lovely. And I realized, you know, this is something that's very special. Uh, and of course, we had to keep an eye on the charts. So we would always choose things like um, uh, whenever, you know, Cream at this time uh, were, were big. Uh, Hendrix obviously was big. So it's very exciting to do songs like, uh, um, you know, uh, Hendrix Fire and um, The Wind Cries Mary and uh, mm. All Along the Watchtower, stuff like that. You know, and Dave was superb at that. And wow. um, things like uh, NSU, songs that people, a lot of people d weren't playing. And, yeah. uh, and with Cream, uh, um, it was, we, we did everything that, 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 that they did. And we got very, very into uh, Alexis Corner and into and to John Mayall, uh, big time. We loved mm -hmm. everything that, that uh, Peter Green did. And sort of, you know, you, you're able to be a free spirit because you, you don't have to earn a living. You're still going to school and things like that. Uh, yeah. And, um, What's so interesting about that is there's so many people in our shop uh, and record buying generally who know all the names that you've mentioned, mm -hmm. but would never will never have the experience of hearing these guys when they were new. No, totally. Yeah. Like, what was it like to hear Hendrix before anyone else had heard anything like Hendrix? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it was it was it was, you know, to use uh, the vernacular of the day, it was mind blowing. It really was mm -hmm. mind blowing. To you know, uh, uh, everything was new, and um, uh, there were. You know, when you wanted to earn a living, you did a commercial gig. And luckily for so many of us, there was there was show bands and there was beat groups playing tennis hops. So you had to, you know, you were walking this line between having to do something that the people understood and that they could dance to, because Ireland's very big in dancing. And um, so this was the case with a lot of the show bands uh, that came around. Show band industry was the greatest, no matter what anybody ever tells you, it was the greatest... Um, uh, um, golden era for, for, for Irish musicians because at the time there, there's never been a time before or since when so many people could earn a full-time living mm -hmm, in music. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, in a lot of the show bands, um, they, they, they straddle this thing about between doing really, you know, good progressive stuff that they like themselves and also catering for the punters. A uh, classic example of that was a band called Gene and the Gents who used to come down and play in our local hall. There was a, um, a local dance hall, uh, would hold, I suppose, about a thousand people. It's a nice place called the Ormond Hall. And a lot of the bands would come there on a Sunday night uh, because Sunday was the big night for, for dancing in, in Ireland because the church had such a grip on the country that they didn't allow the big dances to happen on a Saturday in case people wouldn't get up for mass the following day. Just, <laughs> uh, that's actually true. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. So the big, the, the big thing was, you know, Sunday nights and Gene and the gents, uh, we loved hearing them. I was very young when I first, when I was, became aware of them, maybe about 12, 13. And, um, and they had a guitar player with them who was, we just knew he was fabulous. Uh, his name was Henry McCullough. And yeah. Henry, uh, Henry went on, obviously, to you see him in Woodstock with Joe Cocker and he joined yeah. Wings with Paul McCartney. Yeah. But Henry, Henry was uh, not that much older than us. Uh, God rest him, he's dead now. But mm -hmm. um, he was a hero for us. Uh, and we weren't old enough to be allowed into the dances. So we'd hang, out, hang around and wait for the band to arrive early and then we'd pretend to help them in with their gear. 
<laughs> and and uh, Henry was one of the guitar players, one of the musicians who would sit down on the stage then with us and show us the latest Chuck Berry lick or wow. whatever it was, you know. And so we learned all of that stuff from people like Henry. Fantastic. Uh, I was I was lucky enough there before Henry died to produce him. Uh, I was able to work with him in the studio and I really actually, yeah and I played with him and um, he became a great friend. He used to Henry used to ring me up at eleven o'clock at night and he'd still be on the phone at three o'clock in the morning. Oh no way! <laughs> I, I heard a story. I don't know if you can confirm it or not, but Henry McCulloch did some spoken words on Pink Floyd's "Dark Side of the Moon." haven't a clue uh, yeah. he wouldn't tell you uh, but I tell you what Henry did tell me uh, he told me that he was offered uh, um, a job as a session player on an album and he asked the people who you know, the people the fixers who were uh, offering him the job he said what's the album about and they said um, we just want you to play lead guitar on, on, on tracks it's, it's actually an album about the crucifixion written by two Jews and he said, you must be kidding me. He said, uh, uh, he said, because he had been offered either a small percentage or 70 quid. He said, give me the 70 quid. This thing is going nowhere. Oh, was, no. <laughs> Jesus Christ, superstar. No, <laughs> no way. He took wow. 70 quid for it. <laughs> wow. So that's Henry playing on that, is it? That was that was Henry, uh, oh, oh, uh, but he, he, he could laugh about it. Yeah, Henry yeah, was able, yeah. To, able to laugh about that. But who would have thought? You know, I know. Wow, uh, that's amazing! So, isn't that's so, incredible. So, so when you listen to that, the first um, um, Jesus Christ Superstar album with Ian Gillan and, and Murray Head and <laughs> on it. Yes, yeah. that's, that's Henry playing um, uh, guitar on the on the, lead, wow. uh, the heavy oh, guitar. No, definitely going to be checking that out. I think you also um, you knew, or I think I'm right in saying that you also produced Rory Gallagher at one stage. It was actually the same the same project. Um, I was I was contacted there. Uh, must be ten years ago, maybe a little more, by uh, um, a friend of mine. He's a very wealthy man uh, in lives over in the west of Ireland, called Clem Walsh. And Clem had, who's a, he's a big, big uh, fan, a uh, music fan, and he uh, he's the kind of guy that goes out to Milwaukee and he loves all the you know the big country bands and the Irish bands that play out there. He's, <laughs> but he's uh, he's got a very eclectic taste, and. Uh, he rang me one day. I remember I was at a meeting in Dublin, and uh, he said, "Look, I've got a, a I've got a young band, the guitar players, sixteen, and uh, they're they're fabulous. I I think they're special. Uh, they're neighbours of mine, and I want to uh, put some money into them." <laughs> he said, I, "I need to, you know, I want to make an album with them. Will you produce them?" And um, so I said. Uh, Absolutely not, Clem. You know, I've no interest in this. You know, I have nothing. I'd have nothing in common with a sixteen-year-old guitar player. I'd probably end up, maybe, trying to direct him down some route that I had gone down, and that's not that it would be progressive. So he he kept on saying, "Look, please go and see them." And and and, uh, and he said, "Where are you now?" I said, "I'm in Dublin. I'm going to head down to Cork." He said, "Well, I'm in Galway. I'll meet you in Portlaoise, which is in the middle of the the the, the country." And I said, well, you must drive like a lunatic to get there because I'm on my way to Cork now. So I agreed to meet him and we met. And he told me the band was uh, the band was called the Deans and the, the guitar player was a lad called Gavin Dean. And he had a, his brother with Gary Dean and they had a young drummer as well. 
And uh, so I met them in Port Leash, and the dean's mother was there as well. And um, all I would agree to is to go to hear them. They were playing down in a, in, in a rock gig in Cork. So I said, look, when they're down next week, I'll go and see them. And uh, I went to see them. And sure enough, you know, this guy was a prodigy. Definitely. He was uh, the, the, the guitar player. And they had this amazing image. I mean, they looked, the two brothers looked like the Walker brothers. You know, they were about mm. six foot three and, and uh, the, the whole, yeah. that the whole package. Um, so I called Clem the following day. I said, look, they're very, very good. And they were doing a lot of Gallagher stuff. They were doing some original stuff as well. They were doing, um, and they were also big into, uh, in, into Zeppelin and into early the early Peter Green and 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 Fleetwood Mac and things like that. So I thought that was interesting, and I, uh, I said the only re- the only way I would do an album with these lads is uh, that if you know if they would do a retro type album, it's probably not what they want. And I thought that was a sort of an, an escape route for me that that they'd say no, they wouldn't do this. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, funny enough, they came back and they said, yeah, we'd love to do it. So I was caught. <laughs> Called your bluff. Uh, and at the time, um, I was I was commuting from, uh, I live in Cork, so uh, I'm originally from South Debrary, but I, was, I live in Cork now. So I was commuting from Cork to London every week. I'd go on Monday and come back on Thursday and all that. So I was racking my brains to see what I could do that would make this special because I felt that I had sort of talked them into doing the type of album that may not have helped their career because it was a retro thing. Um, So I came up with this idea that I'd ring some of my friends and ask them if they'd guessed with these fellas, with the young kids. And so uh, when I was in London, I called Eric Bell from Thin Lizzy. You remember Eric then on... He's, he's famous guitar player. Of course, oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, um, uh, the, the the first big hit they had, um, whiskey in the jar. Whiskey in the jar. That's Eric. Yeah, and he's yeah. A, he he is without a shadow of a doubt probably the I, one of the greatest blues players in the world. I, I think Eric is a phenomenal player. Yeah, uh, and he had learned his chops in the show bands. He was with a band called the Dream the, the Dreams. Uh, all of these guys got there, you know, including Rory. Rory was with two show bands, the Impact and the Fontana show band in Cork. So, um, so I called Eric and and I said, uh, I'm on my way back back to Ireland. I said, I'll drop into your flat. I said, I want you to listen to something. And uh, so, I played him a, a, a cassette. I think it was, or it may have been a cassette or or, or a, a DVD. Or a, a CD, and I said, "Who do you think that is?" He said, "It's a young Rory." I said, "It isn't. It's a young kid from from Athenry in in uh-huh. Ireland." He said, "He said." I said, "I want you to to uh, guest on a couple of the tracks and you know, swap licks and swap vocals and that." And uh, I had a budget, so so he said, "Yeah, sure. Look, just tell me when and where." So we, he was on board, and I was playing. I was doing a gig up in Port Rush. I think it was maybe the following week, uh, which is up in North Antrim. Uh, and this was, uh, I was playing with Johnny Fien, actually, uh, Johnny from Horselips. And oh. it, I said, uh, I rang Henry McCullough. I said, Henry, I'm in Port Rush. He said, well, 
drop into me in, my, in Bally Money on the way down, he said, and we'll have some soup. Now, that was a real scary thing because they made soup out of out of stuff they pulled off the bushes. Henry's a, you know, Henry is a, uh, was a hippie. And, they, you know, his, <laughs> oh, he had God. peacocks and everything. And they would, all this, his wife, Josie, is a, uh, uh, it looks like a, a, a French version of Yoko Ono, you know, they're, they're, they're the whole head. <laughs> trip, yeah. and then they make, making this uh, uh, bush soup, I used to call it, you know, mm. leaves and all this kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, they were hippies and they had a pot belly stove in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the house and everything like that. And uh, so I called into Henry and I and uh, I said, have a listen to this after we had a bite to eat. And he said, I said, who is it? She sounds like Rory, he said. Uh, I said, no, it's not. I said, will you do a couple of tracks with him? He said, if you think uh, uh, I should, I will. So I said, yeah, I'd like you to do it. And um, so I had Henry and Eric. And then I, I asked Johnny. I said, Johnny, you know, they adore your playing because Johnny's just, he is unique. Johnny yeah. Fiend is unique. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, so Johnny said he'd do it. And uh, I called um, I called Jackie McCauley. Oh, uh, Jackie I, McCauley was from them originally. Yeah. Jackie was playing keyboards with them, but he he played he played guitar. He's a phenomenal guitar player and a yes. great singer. Uh, he actually he spent some time with with uh, Lonnie Donegan out in Las Vegas. Uh, Did he? So he, yeah, he was <laughs> he's all of that stuff. You know, he's a great slide player, a fabulous singer. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing I said to Jackie when I rang him, I said, Jackie, uh, I said, your buddy Henry McCullough is, is doing this album. I said, I'll do it. So he didn't even ask me who it was. Who he was <laughs> Brilliant. So uh, so I knew I had a, I had an album. Each of them was going to do um, two tracks and, and a bonus track as well. And I said, um, somebody said, isn't it a pity Rory isn't, isn't alive? Uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a real shame. And um, now I knew Rory. Uh, I remember the first time I ever went and bought my own amplifier. I bought a, a my amplifier. Rory came with me where, uh, down to Crowley's music shop in Cork, and he talked me into buying a, a, a Marshall. <laughs> no I reckon. I reckon Rory was on commission. <laughs> Fantastic. So, so uh, I, I I knew him, and he was also good to us uh, at, at the Miami thing. So. Um, I wondered, you know, how are we going to do this? So I got in touch with Rory's brother, um, uh, Donal, who's his manager, and um, he's, you know, has the, it's in charge of the entire estate. And uh, as luck would have it, Donal had heard the Deans playing at the Rory Gallagher Festival in Bally Shannon. Oh, wow. And, and he was knocked out with them. Uh, no, yeah. And uh, so. Uh, I said, he said, "Look, I'll meet you uh, on Kings Road in Chelsea." Actually, uh, so w- we went over, had a bite to eat with him, and he and he was he was he was uh, in agreement. He said, "All our multi tracks are, you know, the the, the big the, the big one." The, he said they're in France, so he he gave us permission to get a couple of the tracks. We I think it was Hands Up and Walk on Hot Coals. Uh, those two tracks, were, yeah. I think. So. Um, the center is over the the, 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 the multi track, so we were set, ready to go, and when, when we did the album, so I was, uh, I did each each of the the the, the lads. We they weren't all there at the same time in the studio. Um, I'd, I'd have Eric there for a few days, and then Henry would come down, and 
it was it was one of the the, the most pleasant uh, periods. Uh, certainly, one of the most pleasant things I've ever done in a studio, and I've I've done lots of stuff and interesting stuff. But to work with these guys who were you know were my my heroes when I was growing up, and um, I remember uh, one 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 evening we had finished. Um, in the studio, Henry, Henry, and I would, and he's such. He was such a nice guy, um, a very, very accommodating man, you know, and uh, great sense of humor. And uh, we, I remember, we, we were. He was doing a track, uh, Crossroads, the, 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 yeah. the and uh, I loved the sound of a Les Paul. But Henry played. Uh, played a three three five he used to call it the old piece of wood you know it was, <laughs> it was actually stolen on him in poland but he had oh, this no. other one uh and he so we're we're, we're doing it and he did this beautiful so oh what is it uh, uh the drivers uh going round and round the old round and round the old chuck berry sure. and uh and he did this beautiful solo on it and he did it on the strat and I'm not a strat. I'm not a strat man, you know. Even though Rory and Hendrix and all yeah, that, you know. Yeah. But, but uh, I just love the sound of a of a gold top. And I knew Henry had a gold top with him. So he he this wonderful solo. And I said, Henry, it's beautiful. Can we have uh, another one? Uh, and I was sort of edging towards getting. So he did about six takes, oh. and I said, "I said, I said, Henry, do you mind? We do another one. Would you mind choosing the gold top?" And he said, "No, not at all." And so uh, I went out to the live room, and I remember opening the case, and he took out the gold top. And I think, although on the videos uh, on my love that solo uh, is the three three five, but I think he actually played it on the gold top. Ah. And he, uh-huh. I always remember, he just took the gold top, the, the Les Paul out, and he handed it to me. He said, oh, you hold that for a second, Steve. He said, We're, um, I look for whatever it was he was looking for. And I remember holding this and say, saying to myself, I, you know, the cheek of me asking this superstar that's done it, <laughs> <laughs> to do six takes until we actually get it. <laughs> <laughs> but he did it for you he knew and he did it yeah oh, yeah man. so uh, we're having uh, having um having the uh, dinner that night just himself and myself and uh, you know for all the superstardom uh thing henry was a country man he was like a real like a real country lad from i think he's originally from port stewart up that way but um the real northern ireland country accent and um I said, uh, just as we finished uh, finished the dinner, I said, uh, if you had your life to or your life to live over again, I said, one day, if you could pick one day out of your life that you would relive, what would it be? And I, I had asked all the lads that, Derek and Johnny, the whole lot, and they all all interesting things. And um, Henry leaned back on the on the chair and he and he closed his eyes and he was looking up at the ceiling and I could see that he was thinking about this and he said one day if I could live one day and I thought he might have said you know when I joined Wings or uh, you know when I played at Woodstock or um, you know his girlfriend at the time was Janis Joplin so I you know I thought maybe uh, that he you know he would have said you know 
uh, jamming with her and he jammed with Hendrix when he was in the heir apparent and all that. Oh, and, and he he surprised me. He said, if I could live one day, he said, he said, I can see it now. And he had his eyes closed and he said, I'm sitting on the little stone wall, he said, near my house. I'm 17 years old and I've got the band suit and the guitar leaning against the wall, he said. And every few minutes I'm looking down the road to see if the Skyrocket show band is coming up the road to pick me up. <laughs> and it was a real eye-opener for me, you know, the fact that here was some a guy that... All he wanted to do was go back to the roots, back to the time that he was learning, that he was a journeyman. And mm. because in a show band, um, you had to play everything. Uh, one of the legendary show band uh, people in Ireland is a guy called Billy Brown. He had a band called The Freshmen. They, they were famous for doing all the sort of the West Coast of uh, Beach Boy. I think they were a fabulous band. And he was a great writer as well, fabulous keyboard player, uh, singer, and uh, and and sax player and B Billy Brown uh, once said um, he was asked about playing in show bands because he played in a lot of heavy bands too and he said uh, to be to get a job in a top flight show band Irish show band you only need to be able to do one thing and that is to be able to play everything <laughs> fantastic yeah. well, I'm be because you know, I remember when I was with the the Miami, or even with bands like Del Hunty, the orchestra, and that you do six you you do six new numbers in a night at a rehearsal or in, in an afternoon. You went out and you played them that night, and if you couldn't do that, if you couldn't listen to it and and twig it, somebody else got your job. You know, right. so there was right. that level of of yeah. competence in the bands. So when did you join the Miami Show Band? Um, well, it's a it was sort of a, a, a progression of things. Um, I went to London when I left school. I think you call it your A-levels. We call it the Leaving Cert. Uh, I went to London and I, I did what every good young fella did. I, I got a job to please my mother, you know, one of the, <laughs> you know, with a collar and tie. And a, uh -huh, and yeah. a, so I, I, I started working in the, uh, in the city of London, in the financial city, and uh, as a trainee broker. And um, I had I had sort of didn't bring my guitar and my bass with me over there because I didn't think I'd ever play again. I was sort of going to do this for the rest of my life. And at that time, there was there was a, a, in a big office like that. Um, th there weren't obviously there weren't copying. Uh, you, you know, you had to go up to this room. It was almost like a, a post office, a big big room. There was a thousand people in the office, and and uh, and there was a. You brought up whatever it was that you had to copy, and you gave it to to this girl, and she put it into the copier and gave it to you. So you'd be the juniors like us would be kind of lined up, and and uh, waiting, you know, to with with the stuff that our supervisors would have asked us to get copied. And there was this fella in the line with me, and he was a very groovy looking guy. I remember that this was nineteen sixty nine, so it was kind of happening there in London, and you know it was all the, the, you know, the King's Road and obviously the Portobello Road and all of that type of thing was happening, you know. And uh, the, 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 the waft of, 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 the, of the ganja down, the, down these roads was like phenomenal, you know. <laughs> yeah. you, you get high just walking down the street. <laughs> and and um, uh, this guy, his name was Hamish Stewart. Now, not to be confused with the Hamish Stewart from the Average White Band, 
but his, he was a very posh lad from, from Ewell in Surrey. And, but his dad was a man called Ian Stewart. Um, uh, he was the band leader at the Savoy Hotel in London. He was a great pianist, great band leader. And um, Hamish started to talk to me because he had long, longish hair and, and I had sort of longish hair as well. So, uh, and he, all he wanted to do was tell me that he was a drummer, you know, and he said uh, uh, um, uh, he was a drummer. And I said, well, I used to play the bass. And he said, oh, brilliant. Come down to my house at the weekend. And, 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 and he just wanted to show off, you know. Oh, bless him. <laughs> and uh, so I did. I went down a couple of week, weeks after I went down. And he turned out to be just a sensational drummer. He had toured with Art Blakey and the jazz Oh, Masters. really? Wow. <laughs> oh, what? He was, he was another prodigy, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, he, uh, at this stage, I had, um, I had got, uh, in the meantime, I got this bass um, and I brought that down and I was playing I was very very big into the Mahavishnu Orchestra I was very sure. big into the whole John McLaughlin thing and yeah. and, uh, and um, so we got on like a house on fire and I started to you know to uh, to get really interested because you just need somebody to push you along and to, to tell you just like you know with this rock machine turns you on you know these guys will, will introduce you to new acts and all of that so um when I went back to Ireland, um, there was a big country boom on and uh, I joined a country band uh, of all names, the Cowboys. And there was never a better name for a band. <laughs> yeah. uh, but they were fabulous. I have to say, Gay Brazil was on guitar and he was just phenomenal. They're a great drummer and great band. Um, and you kind of learn to steady up in a band like that. You know, I always say to young guitar players, young bass players in particular, or drummers, join a country band or a reggae band, a pure style like that, that you've got to, you know, you've got to be aware of everything that's happening and be part of it, a team. And um, one night I was, I was in, a, uh, we had a night off they were a very, very busy band and one of the big, big bands in the country uh, called the Big Eight. They, they had a residency in the Stardust in Las Vegas and they used to, they were originally called the Royal Show Band, probably the biggest, one of the, certainly one of the biggest bands. They had the biggest single ever released in Ireland called The Hucklebuck. Um, it was a real dance song, sort of an audience participation thing. Now, the Miami had more top 10 hits than anyone, but Brendan Barr and the Royal Show Band had, had, had the biggest hit, definitely. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they were huge, and they they would spend six months of the year in in Las Vegas and six months uh, in Ireland touring them the summer, and um, so they they were playing in a place called Care, which is about twenty miles up the road from Carrick and Show, and we had a night off Wednesday night, and. Um, Everybody was going to go to, up to see the big eight. You know, all the band business. Everybody in the, you know, and musicians, managers. Everybody wanted to see what the lads had brought back from Vegas this time, and you know what they had learned, and you, you know, and they always came back with a great set. And they had, they were the first sort of manufactured super band that all lots of other guys were pulled together to join this band when he left the Royal Show Band, and the bass player was a. Was a guy called Tom Dunphy. Played a funny enough, played a six-string Fender uh, bass, and um, he was a, a legendary man. He was he had a I think he was the first guy ever to have a, 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 a in the top and in, in the top thirty or something in 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 the UK, which was a big deal for them. Quite, but he was he, he loved country music, uh, but um, 
everybody headed up to to care to see the band, but I didn't. Um, I thought, you know, just have a night off. I'm going to go to the pictures. Uh, so I went halfway up, well, more than halfway up to Clonmel, and I saw the movie was Carry On Henry, and I said, you know what, I'll go to see that. You know, Sid James, why not? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, when I went in into the the uh, the cinema, um, I was the only one in the cinema. There was everybody was gone to care, you know. So uh, uh, there was about maybe three or four people in. So I sat down. I was watching the movie and I was laughing away. And next minute, this guy comes down. He stands right beside me, uh, and I thought to myself, you know, what the hell is he doing? Why is he coming into my seat? You know, and into my row. I mean, every place else is is empty. Yeah. Uh, so. I stood up to let him in and he didn't pass me and he just tapped me on the shoulder and he said, you wanted up in care. So I said, what are you talking about? And I recognized him that he was a very good guitar player called Martin Hensey. Uh, and I, I said, you know what, Martin? I said, you better give up smoking that stuff. I said, uh, you sit down here and we'll watch the movie. <laughs> he said, uh, no, no, no. He said, honestly, he said, uh, the big eight, Tom Dunphy is sick. And uh, they want you to stand in with the with the big A. I think I was about nineteen at the time, and uh, I just didn't believe him. And he said, uh, "No, no, you've got to come up." I said, "How did you know I was in the cinema?" He said, "Because the manager, who was legendary manager T.J. Bourne, he said he sent out a posse looking for you." Oh my God! <laughs> oh my. And, and do this gig. Amazing. And, this is uh, a place called the Arcadia in Care. So I drove up. I sort of didn't believe him really, you know, but I said, look, my base is down in Caricature is 14 miles down the other way. He said, no, Tom's base is there. You just get up there and use his base. And so I got up there and the manager just met me. I pulled into the sort of gingerly pulled into the, the uh, near the, the front of the, the dance hall. And the place was packed. And, uh, this T.J. Bourne came out and he said, "He said, are you, are you the young, are you the young kid from Caricature?" I said, "Yeah," and uh, it was a thrill to talk to him. Never mind anything else. And he said, mm-hmm. uh, "He said, uh, well, he said, come with me." I said, "Well, I parked my car," and he just snapped his fingers, and the road, uh, the it was supposed to roadie or a doorman just came out, took the car and parked it, and <laughs> I went in with, uh, uh, walked up through the crowd, and this band they were already started. Oh, my, oh my God. God. And they were doing fabulous stuff, you know, uh, all the new American stuff. And uh, so um, he called, he just went to the side of the stage and he called the band leader, who's a, a very famous musician, Paddy Cole. And he said, this is this is Steve. He's going to play with you tonight. And uh, I thought, you know, well, why not? You know, you're 19. You couldn't care less. You know? <laughs> I, I would I would have played with the Beatles, you know. Didn't yeah, you? <laughs> yeah. You're right, man. Even though you didn't know what the hell they were playing. Yeah. Um, and um, so we got up on the stage and, and uh, there's all of these, every one of them would have, you know, been on the front cover of a, of a magazine, all of these people, you know. So I said, the girl singer was called Twink. And I said, uh, and Brendan Barr was there. He's a big towering figure. And and I said, "Do you mind if I stand behind the amplifier?" Uh, uh, I just and he said, "No, no, you got to come out front." And uh, so I was standing out, and he introduced <laughs> me. And there's about like four million people at the gig. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and and he made a big thing of you know this. He's from Tipperary as well, and all this. So everybody was kind of hoping that I'd be able to get through the, the night. And, <laughs> uh, he just turned up his collars. And um, I mean, when you consider that when when they had the residency in the Stardust in Vegas, 
Elvis Presley used to come to see them on a regular basis. Wow. He was very friendly with Presley. Jesus. And he he just turned up the collars and he went into an Elvis medley. I think it was Blue Suede Shoes or something. It was the first one. And the hair stood in the back of my head. Oh. Wow, this is it. Just yeah. went for it. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we had a stomping gig. It was just unbelievable. Uh, some of the songs I hadn't a clue what they were. I'd never heard uh, Gypsies, Tramps and Thieves. I'd never heard that before, you know, the Sonny and Sharon number. Sure, the, sure. Uh, but you know what? Yeah, I, I bluffed my way through it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, oh, that's awesome. that should be modest. I'm, I'm, sure, you, I'm yeah. sure you smashed it. Sure you smashed but it. it was on account of that that half the music industry in the country was at that gig. So I got offered wow. jobs like left, right and centre. Amazing. Uh, and um, I got a, a, a letter from the, the Miami show and they weren't called the Miami show and they were just simply called the Miami because they had morphed from being a traditional type show band to a pop group. Yeah. But the name Miami was so valuable that they didn't want to let that go. So they just yeah. held on. You know the way you'd have that, that band, Scottish band, Texas? You yes. Know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, or, you know, bands like Chicago and things like sure. that. So mm -hmm. they thought, you know what, we'll hold on to Miami. Yeah. And they were doing a lot of original stuff. And uh, at this stage, Fran had molded the band back into a band that he had originally been with called The Chosen Few who are very, very much a soul band. They were doing a lot of Otis Redding, Percy Sledge and yeah. all of that kind of thing. So he had he had brought the band back and they weren't wearing uniforms or anything like that. It was, uh, it was a, a great, great pop band. And um, so they, they, they called me and, and uh, I met them this was 1974, and uh, I went up and I met them, and, and uh, the, their bass player was leaving, a guy called Johnny Brown. He's a great player. And uh, so I, I did some, some stuff with them in the, in, in the hotel, and uh, they said, great, we'll, we'll give you a call on, on Monday. They were playing a gig that night. So uh, Anne and I, Anne and my wife, we, she, we just got married, and... Uh, so the following Monday, they got in touch with me and they said, our guitar player um, wants to go on bass, so will you play guitar? And I said, absolutely not. You know, I have no interest. I'm not a guitar player. Because you know, it's a popular misconception. People say, well, bass, guitar, guitar, the same thing. Well, it's like saying, you know, you're a tradesman, so if you're a plumber and you're like, you can still fix my electricity, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It doesn't work like that. Absolutely, no. right two different ways of thinking. So so I turned them down and uh, then the following May they uh, they uh, got in touch again. They said, um, we need a bass player. This time we'll definitely give you the bass job if you'll take it. So I said, uh, okay, I'll go up. And I thought it was a matter of just just go up to Dublin and get, you know, sort out the wages and do that. When I arrived, um, uh, I you could park in Parnell Square in Dublin at that stage. So I, I pulled in and uh, taking my guitar, the bass. I had a very unusual guitar, I suppose, for the time. It was a, a Dan Armstrong plexiglass bass. Um, and there was about four of them in the country. Uh, Phil Linnett from Thin Lizzy had one. Bruce Shields had one. Barry Devlin from Horse, Horse Lips. It, was, it wasn't that many. And I loved it. Um, so I was taking it out of the, bank, the boot of the car and one of the directors of the band, uh, Tony Bogan, who had at one stage played drums with them, but had well retired at that stage, 
he 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 spotted me and uh, he saw me taking the guitar and he said, "Are you up for the audition?" I said, "What what are you talking about an audition?" You know, I mean. Uh, he said, well, he said, the word got out and um, he said, uh, all the heads are here, you know, all the, so I think to myself, you know, it's a bit cheeky, you know, I, I think I'm going to come up here and just sort it out. But uh, <laughs> I, I went into the hotel, it was just at the other side of Farnell Square, and it's called the George Hotel. And uh, my heart sank. I mean, there was about 10 bass pairs there and every one of them, I I knew them from the magazines. They were all oh, what? These guys were all phenomenal players, you know. Um, uh, you know, they could play everything. Uh, and and one by one, they'd go up and, and the lads in the band were, were Fran was, was, had this sheet with the set list on. And every time one of them would go up there and they all knew each other and I didn't know them. I, you know, uh, I was a country guy and uh, from way down the country and these were all sort of Dublin and, you know, the city guys who were yeah. in and out of all the great bands and they were always, they all wanted this, this top job, you know. And uh, I was, I was almost going to ring home and say, Dan, you know what, I'm wasting my time here. But I, I, I was so interested in seeing how, how they, these guys were playing. I just said, so I was watching them all and Fran would show them the set list and uh, he'd say, you know, what songs do you know, know from this set list? This is our set list. And they'd all say, well, you know, pick one. They didn't mind, you know, uh, whatever it is you want to play, play. And they played and some of them were great singers. And uh, and they played. one thing I noticed was they all played exactly like the record. You know, whatever was on the record, whether it was a Beach Boy number or whatever, they were all like session players. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is going to be the first time in my life that I've ever failed an audition. I, and I'm not going to do this. This is not going to happen for me. I'm not going to fail this one. And uh, so I was the last one. And, and, and the, the directors of the band were sitting at a table and they were all watching. And one of them got up and he came over to me, Tony Bogan. He said, do you want to give it a go anyway? He said, because uh, it'll be good for your CV that you auditioned for the Miami. And I thought, you know, you know, you're a bit cheeky, you know. I was thinking, you know, how dare you? Yeah, yeah. And yet I was thinking, you know, um, if he if he shows me the set list, which he's going to do, I have never in my life played the same song the same way twice. You know, I'm not that kind of a player. I don't yeah. learn it from the yeah, record. yeah. So I thought to myself, how am I going to bluff this? You know, because I'm not going to fail it. So. Sure enough, I walked up, plugged my Dan Armstrong in, and uh, Fran recognized me from having pl did the audition the year before with them. And he said, uh, oh, great, he said, um, um, what would you like to do from this list? And I looked at the list and I saw chirpy, chirpy, cheap, cheap, and all this kind of stuff, you know, all this sort of uh, gobbledygook that was in the charts. And I yeah. thought, you know, if I play this, I'm not going to play it like the record. And, uh, now, they had some good stuff on there as well, but also the commercial thing. So I said, I said, would you mind jamming for a few minutes? We loosen up uh, uh, before we play any of this. I was taking a risk, but I knew he was a jazzer, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She said, well, he said, you take it away. So I, I just made up this kind of medium uh, tempo soul thing because I knew he liked soul and the brass would have come into it as well. So I, I made up this riff 
And within a couple of seconds, you know, Tony Gerdy picked up on it. He was straight over. Everybody starts jamming and grooving. <laughs> no, and, and we're playing for about, I'd say, about two or three minutes. And he said, and he put his hands up, and the suits are all sitting in front of that, at the at, at this table with their pe- pens and paper, and and uh, and, uh, and I thought to myself, the game's up. You know, he's going to ask me either to play this other stuff, or or he's going to say, you know. He call my bluff, and what he said, he looked at the suits and he said, "This is the guy I want." I was, I said, That's simple. Wow. Absolutely brilliant! What a story! So you'd already effectively, kind of nicely, been told that you, you can try, but we've already made our decision. You're not getting the the job. But then they hear you for two minutes and it's all yours. That's fantastic. It, it sounds like that guy, that guy being cheeky, it sounds like he dug out the stubborn side of you when you said to yourself, do you know what? I'm going to go for this no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was no way I was going to I was going to fail it. But well, me, the missus said the other night, there's no more of a driver for a man than spite. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best motivation a man can get, you know? So, uh, so they said, uh, "Can you come up next week? We're going to get some photographs, new <coughs> photographs taken. Uh, as these are the iconic ones that you'll see on the, you know, the black and white pictures. Sure. And uh, uh, and then once you get the pictures taken, we'll we'll do the publicity for the, the and and uh, the lads are going to go on. I think it was ten days or two weeks holiday immediately. So we went up and and that's St Anne's Park that now in those famous photographs." Uh, that you'll see even on the cover of the of the Netflix documentary, mm-hmm, yes. so, uh, they were taken yes. that day. Yes, and um, they uh, did the photographs. And there's so much that I can remember about that day. You know, uh, Tony is actually wearing a dark jacket. It belongs to Fran. I remember the photographer saying, "Have you got a jacket?" Tony said, "No," because he Tony wouldn't know what day it was. All he knew was uh, how to play the guitar. You know, he couldn't care less if the if the moon stars were falling down top of him. He's just <laughs> a muso. You know? Yeah. And um, so I remember that day really well. And when we finished the the photo session. Um, Fran got this big reel-to-reel. It was a big Revox reel-to-reel thing. And he said, we taped our last gig. This is a set we'll be doing on the first night. So I knew there was, wasn't going to be any rehearsal, you know, for the for the band. So, uh, so he handed me this tape and he said, uh, listen to this, he said, and, and, and this is the thing. Uh, and he said, we're away on holiday. So uh, I, I looked at, the, at this big reel-to-reel. I threw it in the back of my car and went on my holidays as well. You know? <laughs> it's, Brilliant. Uh, That's fantastic. Rock and roll, um, absolutely. And absolutely. Uh, so, so the day came then when I was playing in Black Rock and just north of, uh, um, close to the border, and, um, and I had to go. Normally, we would all travel in the personnel van. We had a, a Volkswagen minibus, like all good hippies, <laughs> had, uh, you know, the the VW van, yep. and the roadie would go and and head. But because it was my first night there, I had to bring my my gear up. Uh, to give it to the roadie, and I decided to travel with him rather than wait for the others at the at the at the hotel that we would have the band call. And uh, I had a tall Marshall four by twelve. It was one of the tall four by the angled ones. Yeah, was, yeah, uh, a base one, and it was a big hefty one. So I gave it to the roadie to put in. And uh, funny enough, I was using a HH top, uh, uh, an IC one hundred top, which I actually liked. Um, and um, so we headed up, and just as we got in toward, in, in towards Black Rock, I saw these like hundreds and hundreds of people 
walking down the beautiful evening, walking down towards the ballroom. Um, and, you know, and I thought to myself, geez, I'm sorry I didn't learn the stuff, the stuff now, you know, I mean, this place is going to be packed. Out. <laughs> and I said to the roadie, Brian McGuire, I said, I said, uh, I said, I should have learned the stuff. And he said, it's a bit late now. I hope you can dance. So, <laughs> That's Brilliant. How did it go? I went great. Uh, opened up with uh, Reach Out, I'll Be There by the Four Tops. Oh, I thought, really? you know, this yeah. is me because one of my favorite bass players of all times is James Jemerson, who did all the Tamil stuff, you know. And yeah. Afterwards, yeah. it would have been Bob Bobbitt. But James Jemerson was the man. He influenced everybody from McCartney to influenced everybody. He was just a yeah. great player. Mm-hmm. So from from there, Stephen, you were uh, in the Miami Show Band at this stage. Um, what year was that? Was that seventy seventy five? Beginning of seventy five. Okay. Uh, I was actually uh, I joined at the very beginning of June seventy five. June seventy five. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, then you were touring in the north. Oh, we, we toured all over the country. I mean, yeah. we, we were doing. Uh, we'd like to have one night off uh, a week, but um, it was. The step I had played with fabulous bands and fabulous musicians. I mean, people like uh, you know uh, the, the guys I've mentioned, but in the show bands, guys who were older than me. Um, I joined Delahunty Orchestra, uh, Junior Orchestra. Well, his his father was a famous band band leader, a guy called Mick Delahunty, but this was Mick Junior. But his father was so big that whenever they played, they would pack Carnegie Hall in New York, and whenever they played in in Chicago and O'Hare Airport, they would roll out the red carpet out to the plane. You know, that's yeah, how wow. big they were, these guys. Uh, and he had great musicians who Mick Jr. poached when he was forming his band. It was a guy called Paddy Byrne, trumpet player. And hand on heart, I have never in my life ever played with a better musician. I mean, the guy is just... Is, is, what he does is is just unreal, spectacular. Uh, uh, all of the sessions I've played on a lot of sessions and big band sessions, and the one thing you mentioned, Paddy Barnes' name, and th- what they'll all say is nobody ever heard him blow a wrong note or make a mistake or blow sharp or, f- or flat. Never. And he was also a phenomenal keyboard player. Uh, just one of these super... So I played with lots of people, lots of great people, and, and in, in the UK as well when I when I was there for a while. But joining the Miami was... The difference was that this was like... Um, the popularity was incredible. Uh, you would stop on the way to a gig, maybe at a shop to... You know, Fran had a very sweet tooth, so he would s- stop to get sweets or... He loved all these jelly babies and black jacks and all this <laughs> small. Yeah. And he would have he would have a big bag of 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 uh, a brown paper bag of sweets and nothing in it would cost more than tuppence. You know, it was uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it was one of those guys. And um, they were if you stopped at a shop, within like I'd say a minute, the shop would be packed. With people and you know, especially all the girls would be there because he was yeah. uh, like your superstar, and um, uh, so it was that type of thing that you'd never experience. You'd start playing, you know, at a gig, and there'd be uh, everything was laid on for you. You know, you didn't have to 
have to do anything yourself. Uh, all your gear was was set up, and later on in the other band, you know, you, you just dropped your suit on the floor, and some fella picked it up and got it dry cleaned. You know, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I hadn't been used to that type of thing. Uh, you were called the Irish Beatles, weren't you? I hate that, uh, um, that 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 comparison. There's only one Beatles, and we certainly weren't weren't, weren't the Beatles. But yeah. um, uh, you know, that's something. I think it was the Sun newspaper or something like that. One of those put that on a on a headline that they were the Irish. But was it know, not just because the, the the hysterical and mass amount of fans? You know, I mean, you were it was yeah. just the adulation at the time. I suppose there was nothing quite like it in Ireland. Well, well, there was a couple of bands that had that, but Fran had this special thing uh he was like now they did you know people used to the comparison was he's like he's ireland's david cassidy and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i i've said that to a, a, a couple of young people at talks and they say well, who the hell is david cassidy <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it, he had that he had this cheeky sort of boyish type thing but he was also world-class organs he was you know his his idols were people like uh um, you know, say um, the, the the great the, the great keyboard players. Um, what's his name? Uh, plays Virginia Woolf. You know, the, the the album. Uh, Jimmy Smith. People like Jimmy Smith. Jimmy Smith. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, and and that type of thing. So he was very into all of that. But yeah. on, on the way to a gig, um, you know, uh, I remember the the album of the month for us when we were playing. For when July, just before the incident happened, uh, we we must have played this. There was a cassette player in the in the in the Volkswagen minibus, and it was road work uh, the, by uh, um, Edgar Winters' White Trash road yeah. work. So yeah. it was like it's as heavy as you can get, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you had Rick Derringer on on guitar, and Johnny uh, his his brother guested, I think, guested on it with that. Um, uh, one of my favorite tracks, which I think was written by Rick Derringer, it's called Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo, which is yep. uh, just, you know, yep. as, uh, I've played it again and again, time and time again with various bands. But yeah. Uh, so the band was very, very into that. Uh, and, but the minute we went on stage, we were the Beach Boys or we were, the, you know, we were sure. the Beatles or yeah, we were, yeah. uh, uh, all of that type of thing. So yeah. it was... Uh, we we all understood this that we had to be somebody else when we were doing this. But uh, yeah, yeah. And when I joined the band, um, I was only in the band about a week when Fran. I, I was told that Fran was doing a a, a showcase in Las Vegas, singer songwriter showcase in Las Vegas, and and um, so we were aware of that, and that if, if it had been successful, he would have left the band and worked in America. And within a week, he, he of me joining, he said, "Look." I'm putting a band together if it's worked works out, and uh, will you join my band in America? So he was basically uh, poaching me from from the Miami. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was in two minds about that because Tony Garrity had asked me. We intended to leave the Miami uh, um, uh, the f- early in '76. Tony and I had had spoken about uh, about putting a, a band on together with uh, Danny O'Keefe and people like that. So we would have gone back to being, you know, a, a rock band, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. which is yeah. what which is really what what we did. Um, sure. So I was in two minds, you know, will I will I go with Fran? Because I mean, Fran is probably going to be very big in America. Uh, 
you know, the people like Gilbert O'Sullivan and people like that were big at the time and uh, um, all that piano singer-songwriter thing. Uh, um, Elton John, of course. Elton John would have been it would have been a big inspiration for all mm-hmm. of those guys. So, uh, but we, I never got to make that decision because of what happened. So do you want to talk us through what happened, Stephen? Well, I won't go into details, but sure. uh, if people want to, you know, want to see the sort of the backstory, just watch the Netflix documentary. Well, that's is, the, I'll just basically introduce, if you don't mind, um, uh, Stephen's band, the Miami Show Band, was involved in one of the atrocities of the Irish Troubles. It's still uh, something that Stephen's involved in trying to find justice for. He's written a book about it. Uh, was in the process of still working on, on all sorts of things related to the Troubles. But of course, uh, Netflix made a terrific documentary about the Miami show yeah, band. Yeah, really it was did. part of their remastered series. Yeah, um, the, on our way to a gig in, 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 in Banbridge, we had played, we had played uh, Monday and Tuesday at the, at the Galway races in a, a huge place called the Sea Point in Galway, outside Galway. And uh, we had one night off that week, so having played the Monday and Tuesday, we then had to play the Wednesday in Banbridge, uh, which is just north of Newry, in, in, in the nor- north of the border. And uh, uh, we, we did that gig. And on the way home, uh, uh, three of our lads were murdered and um, and I was, uh, I was, I was shot and, and uh, badly injured. And uh, so, so what was become known as the, the Miami Chauvin Massacre, which is really changed changed music uh changed uh everything for in ireland because uh bands wouldn't travel north anymore uh i remember uh i remember there was uh they often say rory gallagher played in the north afterwards um he did he did rory rory played uh, in the north he was one of the few bands that did i remember uh yeah, I was I was sitting in my car on O'Connell Street um, in Dublin, just stopped at the lights there near the Ambassador Cinema, and uh, the door of my car opened and, and Rory sat into it and he he just said he said you pull over here because uh, he said just want to tell you he said that I'm 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 playing the um, I'm playing the North and and uh, want to talk to you about it, and uh, said, you know I had, I had I had no problem I just said to him you really got to be very careful. That's that's about that's as much as, but he had good uh, security and they loved him anyway. I don't think it was going to happen again, something mm-hmm. like that, because our, our thing was uh, was uh, it just backfired on the people who organised it. Um, still looking for justice. We after that, I, I wanted to, you know, I thought that the best way to get my life back together was uh, was by reforming the band and being part of the reform band. Yeah, but uh, that didn't you don't get your life back you're changed and it takes you years and years to to um to understand that you've been psychologically damaged as well you know it's physically badly injured but it's not the same life you'd be taking back is it then you're a different person surely after something like that well that's that's exactly right because i was diagnosed about about uh five years ago with a thing called enduring personality change which you're you're spot on Uh, you, you you become you you go into an incident as one person, you come out another person. And uh, also the fact that when, you know, when, when we went back in the road, it it became the Miami show band again. So they tagged the name show band onto it. Des Lee mm-hmm. um, was, was more or less, well, he had been the band leader, although, you know, you'd hardly notice that he was a band leader in the old band, but in the new band, he was, he, he, he got everybody to wear these, 
white suits with lurex collars and uh, you know the sparkly thing and and it was just you know I remember looking at the uh, at the band one night on stage I mean you couldn't hear yourself playing the screaming got louder there was crash barriers mm -hmm. and fellas being pulled off the stage and and I remember looking across and obviously missing Tony and Brian Fran, you know, uh, now the new guys were all great, and, but, but it was a manufactured thing. It was, and I think to myself, you know, if this, if the, if the Miami show band had been this band, when I, I wouldn't have joined it. It's not what I, you know, what yeah, I would have yeah, wanted yeah. To, to be in. Because yeah. it, it, it wasn't going to go anywhere. It was uh, for a number of reasons, you know, they were all great players, but yeah. um uh, it, it was it was always going to be a, almost like a, a, a sad caricature of itself. Yeah. Um, and when we, you know, so I was I gave my notice after about six weeks, and and everybody said, you know, you're crazy, you're leaving the biggest band in the country. And uh, I, I thought, you know, well, if you want the job, you can take it. You know, it's yeah. Uh, and they asked me. There was real opposition to me leaving you know and the management didn't want me to leave and they felt that there'd be a you know that this would be the beginning of the end for the band and um so i promised not to tell anyone and at the time there were the big showbiz magazine in ireland was called the starlight magazine it used to be called spotlight and then it became new spotlight and then starlight and there was a, a journalist on it called uh, julie boyd and Julie was like the head of Hopper of her day. She could make or break a band, you know. A, yeah. You know, one bad review from her. Now she loved the Miami, but one bad review from her, and, and, and you were you were in trouble, you know. But for some reason or other, no matter what I said, uh, uh, Julie always gave me great, uh, great write-ups. And uh, uh, you know, yeah, you see, open the magazine when we super buy of the week, you know, everything is like, this isn't me, you know. But you know, Julie was that was her thing, you know, and. Uh, and so having promised not to tell anyone uh, about me leaving because they, they made me, uh, they, they, they asked me if I'd stay until the summer holidays in June, I think it was June or July. So I reluctantly agreed, and um, but I couldn't wait to get out. And I was driving down from, uh, from Dublin down to, I had a house in South Tipperary at the time as well. We also lived in Dublin. And uh, I switched on Radio Luxembourg in the car and it was on the news that I was leaving the band. You know? <laughs> so I thought, you know, the band then, the management then blamed me for telling somebody. I didn't tell anyone, but Julie had found out because they had a radio program on, uh, 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 on they had a sponsored program on Radio Luxembourg. So she told Tony Prince, I think it was some of, some of those guys. Uh, and, and so when I came back, the management wouldn't talk to me. They said that I was, you know, that, that I had sort of spilled the beans, but... You know, at the end of the day, I didn't care. All I wanted to do was 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 be gone from this, and uh, and 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 I eventually did. Was a big sigh of relief when I when I when I left the band. It was just uh, wasn't for me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, did you? What did you do musically after that? Uh, I went back down to Carrigan-Shure and played with a band, uh, a very aptly named band called The Sinners. Brilliant. Liam Dewar was a character. Um, he he. He had decided to go into politics, local politics, and he would top the polls. And he was a good-looking lad. He was a great friend. We, 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 
and, and we had a guitar player called Andy Burris who's died since a uh, lovely man but Andy wasn't the best guitar player in the world by a long shot you know we had a fabulous drummer called Paul O'Keefe but Andy was the funniest man I've ever played with you know so you, you went on stage and you laughed until you got off it and the crowd <laughs> laughed as well and he would he would pick the daftest of songs like uh, the theme music from Dusty's Trail and he would sing that and people <laughs> were just going nuts they loved him so it, it was just, it was one of those bands that should never ever have worked because whenever there was a, a, a solo they were doing stuff like uh, Ballroom Blitz and, and you know Sweet yeah, and yeah. Devil Great Devil Gate Drive and Susie Qu you know all that sort of yeah. really driving stuff pop yeah. stuff and whenever it came to the solo I I had a uh, um, a fuzz box and a, a wah wah pedal and an octavider, and I just let go on it and I just <laughs> whacked into it and played as heavy as I could. And the, and the crowd would erupt. <laughs> oh, magic. That's so, brilliant. I'd love to have that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It was, it was crazy, absolutely yeah. crazy uh, um, uh, time. Uh, but it was it was great, great fun. Um, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, it's. Uh, if I were to to do a night in 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 any of the bands, I, I'd probably go back and do a night with that one because uh, it was it was such fun. Yeah, you know, just it hit you it hit you like like a, a juggernaut the minute the minute the lads just started playing. The crowd <laughs> yeah, yeah, amazing. amazing. So sorry, I was just going to ask. I mean, what for you personally? What what's your favourite part of being in a band? Is it the jamming? Is it the recording? Is it just being? A worshipped god playing live on stage. What, what, what's the main thing for you there? Uh, the, my favourite thing about playing in a band. First of all, is playing with good guys. I mean, playing with Johnny Fien, for instance. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, Blendy Krasnichi uh, on drums. Johnny Blendy and myself, or Johnny McRoley and myself, or the man that just died there. Uh, um, um, uh, the, that played with Skid Row, an old bridge man. I mean, who who uh, John Peel once said was the greatest drummer in the world. Um, when he was, he had a band called called Skid Row. Now there is a band in America called Skid Row, but he, his band was himself and Brush Shields and Gary Moore. And I mean, they were heavy, heavy. I mean, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. But I, I played with Noel. But you know, when I think of say playing with somebody like Blendy Krasnichi, he's from Kosovo. Um, looks like a, yeah, a big bear he's uh, um, just unreal uh, and the freedom so you're playing with great people that you admire yeah, yeah, hugely yeah. and then the perfect uh, setting for that for me would be to play someplace like the hideaway in um, in, in, in Crushing over in the west of Ireland where at maximum you can fit 70 people I've played the Royal Albert Hall I've played you wow. name it I've played in in uh, football stadiums and places like that. But to play in a place where there's 70 people and every one of them are intense, they're looking at yeah, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're, 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 they're almost playing as much as you are. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, so that is, you know, that's my favourite, my favourite gig, but there's no money in that, you know. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it feeds your soul. It Absolutely. Feeds your soul. Absolutely. Uh, playing it, I, I, when I went to London, uh, um, you know, the, the, in 1982, I had done an album with uh, for CBS um, with a, a band called The Crack. Um, it was a, 
a pop, very much a, a, a kind of a, a Beatles type band, but doing all original material. If you if you go to the Crack Campus Rock, you'll see the the thing. It's a live gig. It's good. Tommy, yeah, Tommy, definitely. Tommy's dead now. As well. Tommy's the lead singer, but Tommy definitely thought he was Paul McCartney's smarter brother because he sounds exactly <laughs> like him. <you know? laughs> uh, yeah. well, I think Paul McCartney was a bit of an inspiration to you from previous chats we've had. Yeah, I mean, look. I, um, all the great bass players from, you know, from John Entwist and Jack Bruce, uh, right the way to Jack O and Billy Sheen, all those guys are all all fabulous. But Paul McCartney, hand on heart, he's the greatest electric bass player that ever stood on the face of this earth. And the reason is he knows where the right note goes in the right place. It, it For a bass player, that's what it's all about. It's about being effective. Yeah. Just listen to what he does. He's, you know, his counterpoint uh, when he plays, you know, listen to even something you take for granted, the, the, a throwaway song that they wrote for Ringo on the, I think it's the first track after the introduction, after the Orchard in Sgt. Pepper's, A Little Help From My Friends. You listen to his bass playing on that. Um, he's just, he's the best. Uh, City Love songs, all of that type of thing. And it's just inspirational you want to know how to play bass you listen to him uh, um or or somebody like now he's my favorite but and he has influenced everybody mm-hmm. including jacko he's influenced everybody oh yeah uh, yeah uh, then there are other great players there uh joe osborne and again you know if there are any young people listening here and they'll laugh when i say this listen to what he did with the carpenters with the mamas and the papas he's you know such a he knows the weight of a note if he's doing a slide yeah 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 it's it's not you know he's not just sliding down thing he knows when to just ease on it slightly all the nuances um, one, one of the things Steve, you just you touched on the carpenters there and it's quite interesting for people who are interested in record shops or buying vinyl or or just in music with vinyl being the vehicle when i first started like selling vinyl as a for a living uh-huh. um the carpenters were bands that when you're buying record collections you would think right oh god I've got to buy the Carpenters to get this Beatles stuff you know it's that kind of way um, so you'd buy the collection thinking what am I going to do with the Carpenters I know I'll sell the Beatles but nowadays thankfully people don't have that kind of narrow mind anymore but I think they've all been educated now the Carpenters mm-hmm. and ABBA yeah. all the proper good well written tunes yeah. they're showing their worth and now these things sell extremely well and you listen to the Carpenters you put them on and they were considered uncool, uh, certainly in the punk era, for example, post-punk. Mm-hmm. But now we've kind of all matured and come full circle in many ways. Maybe that it's seems just my age be, No, that, that seems to be but the thing. everybody appreciates that you can sell carpenters now like there's no tomorrow. Uh-huh. For the reasons you just mentioned, the musicianship, yeah. Yeah. the writing, the yeah. singing, the production, it's, yeah. it's glorious. I mean, um, uh, Richard Carpenter was, was fabulous. I mean, his, the voicings on the harmonies, yeah. if you buy, if you buy a, a, a harmonizer, um, you know, vocal harmonizer, um, uh, you, you'll often see, you know, samples of different types of harmonies that are presets. And you see Beach Boys or you see things that you will most, more than likely see Carpenter's yeah, yeah, yeah. A style of harmony as well. So, 
Um, but have a listen to the, I mean, the guitar player on, on, on the Carpenter stuff, Goodbye to Love, uh, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. It's just out of this world. I mean, uh, and I became very friendly with it. Uh, I remember it was my birthday a few years ago. Well, a good few years ago. <laughs> I, have, I have one every year, actually. It's <laughs> just the way to say. I've been 55 a few times. Yeah, a few yeah. times. Like two yeah. years I, ago. I decided to go backwards there recently. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, one one birthday, I remember this, this parcel arrived for me. It's a big parcel. I still have it here in, in, in my office. And uh, uh, it was from America. Uh, sounds like the name for a, a good uh, radio series, Parcel from America. But this one was, and uh, it, it was a present from probably the most prolific um, bass player in the world ever, uh, Carol Kay who did every single one of 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 uh, the Beach Boys records really? every single one of of all of Elvis's stuff um, Ray Charles she did you know when you listen to stuff like uh, um, Mission Impossible that's her on it you know what? herself her, she, she's the look her up Carol K C A R O L K A Y E and um, and she sent me this present I had, I mean, I, I was a big fan, but I'd never been in touch with her or anything like that. So somebody had sent her a clip of what I did, and she liked it. So she sent me a present of all of the uh, her copies of all of her studio logs. And you open it up, and you see, you know, Wednesday night, West West something studios, uh, uh, Beach Boys, uh, God Only Knows, uh, Good Vibrations. She was... This is who she is. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So I got in touch with her and, and we became very friendly. Now she's, she can be a, a strange lady as well. And so one day my my uh, email was hacked and it started sending out sort of, I don't know, some kind of ads or something like that. And she was telling me, you know, that I was sending out all this stuff and I was telling her I wasn't. And, <laughs> and it, <laughs> I didn't bother with her anymore. We didn't bother with each other anymore. But she's, yeah, but... She's she's also you know she I think she, she was certainly the number one bass player for for donkeys years in the world and wow, uh, wow yeah and she was number three in America on guitar player with a band called the Hitmen you know so just one of these phenomenal players but yeah. these are the ones that young people should listen to sure. yeah um, yeah yeah sure if if you want to if you want to know you know like how to play how how to play bass properly and also I, as I said earlier on. Join a band that's playing a pure style for a short while, if you know, so that you'll steady up. A country band is a really good idea, yeah. Uh, and uh, or a reggae band, which is you know teaches you where it is and uh, you know where you should be in the and the whole thing. Uh, pop music, there's no such thing as pop music. Just as there's no such thing as jazz, there isn't a style called jazz. There's modern jazz. There's all to, you know. It's an excuse for being free, you know, which is why yeah, I love yeah, jazz yeah, and all yeah. that. Pop music, well, I mean, how can you say, you know, God only knows one of the greatest records ever ever, ever made by the Beach Boys. It, that's called pop music. And so is they're coming to take me away or they're coming to take me away, ha ha, by uh, Napoleon yeah. III. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but yeah. it seems to change after X amount of decades. What, what, what was scary and intimidating and maybe the devil's music 50 years ago is now just soft class 
pop, I suppose. You know, it, it does oh. change. And it's like even little things, like little weird things, like uh, I think we talk about um, Elvis albums and likes even Kate Bush albums, which yeah. decades ago, even 10 years ago, you'd get 30 quid for a Kate Bush album. Now you're about a tenner. Elvis albums, you're lucky if you can squeeze a fiver out of somebody for an Elvis album. Yeah. But before, they were huge collector's items. So what once was, you know, maybe edgy or out there music just sort of changes over time as maybe harder stuff comes in. And then I suppose once you've got the, the platinum discs, is it officially then pop? Because yeah. it was just Good point. so well sold, so well overplayed and just forced into everybody's ears. You know, pop isn't a sound. It's no. popular music. Popular. What was that's popular? What, what sold? Yeah, that's I agree with that. I agree with that. So, you know, when I'm asked, um, you know, what people should listen to, I don't teach anymore. I was, te I was a very bad teacher. You know, if, if I got a, if there was a good student there, I was like, like we'd be jamming all day, you know, and if there was a bad student, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't yeah, wait yeah. to be over, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, but probably the, the best student I ever had was John Walsh. John Walsh was uh, just soaked it all in. He And he went off and played then with uh, with uh, Stockton's Wing like all over the world, you know. And John was, John understood the, the the most important thing for any bass player, any drummer, any musician. You know, he, he asked me once. He, he was, they were just back from a tour of Australia, I think, and he said, you know, he said, you know, what do I need to achieve? And I sort of sit down there and play, and he was playing, and he was he was doing all this funky stuff, and, and I said, it's wonderful, John. I said, but he said, I said there is something, there's a big ingredient missing here. And he said, what is it? I said, the truth. The, the truth is missing from your playing here. I said, because you're just playing to, you know, you're not playing from inside yourself. You're playing to impress me. I don't want to be impressed. I know you're a good player. Mm -hmm. But I said, where's the truth in this music? You know, where's the conviction in it? So I said, whether you sit down, you put one note to the bar, or whether it's 40 notes to the bar, I said, it just has to be the truth. And I got that from a man, actually a, a bass player in Cork, uh, here and he sadly passed away. A man called Cranston King, and he told me he said the way I feel about music, no matter what it is, and sometimes I disguise it. He said I swing music. He said whatever I play, I swing. He he came from the big band stuff, and when I listened to him, like there was this swing, uh, groove in everything that he did. It didn't matter what he was doing. He just put that notes and would millionth of a millisecond someplace that made the difference you know <laughs> uh, and uh, he's the man that started me off playing jigs and reels on the on, on the bass uh, um, he, he, I remember I went I went out to see him one time and I was really proud that uh, he, he had told me he said you know a lot of the great jazz players um, they play Irish jigs and reels on the on, to get their technique together wow so, yeah, so, yeah. So I said, what do you, uh, what do you think? Uh, he said, well, you know, things like the Irish washerwoman and things like that and uh, Mason's Apron and things. So I learned them and uh, and I went out and I was really happy. You know, I said, you know, he said, well, play the Irish washerwoman for me. So I bad, a diddly, 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 diddly. And uh, he said, great. And uh, he, he said, he said, is that as, 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 uh, as good as you can do it now? He said, because this is for your technique. I said, yeah. I said, well, what, what do you think? You know, what else can I do? I mean, I'm playing it. He said, well, try doing it on one string. And he did it on one string like this. And I thought, I went home. I said, my choice is I can hang myself or I can try and do it, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's got to be the line of the season. That's brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was, there's always some better way you can do it. There's always yeah. something. But, yeah. Uh, so it's the truth in the music. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's that effectively what it is, is that you're putting that little bit of yourself into it. And yeah. it's no longer yeah. the pop song that you heard yeah. on the radio. It's no longer the one that everybody says, let's get this strong and we go down yeah. to the pub and yeah. we we'll do it tonight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that reminds me of the, um, uh, you remember Lemmy from Motorhead? Oh, yeah. Another good bass player. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a drive, yeah. What a drive. <laughs> he, um, he was on, uh, somebody might correct me, but I think it was on some, some kids show, not quite Blue Peter, but something like that. And uh, he was waiting to be interviewed with his leather jacket. It looks like he'd maybe just sobered up for the occasion. Oh, maybe, you know, God. partly at uh-huh. least. And on the stage was Dollar, which was a guy and a girl. Yeah. Pop classics, yeah. right? Uh, and they were singing their song. And they, inter- they finished it. And the interviewer then said, thank you, Dollar. And they came back to Lemmy, who's sitting there all hunched up, ready to go. And they said, uh, I guess that wouldn't be your cup of tea, Lemmy. He says, why wouldn't it be? They wrote the song themselves. They sang their hearts out. I defend to the death the right to play whatever they want. And I thought that was such a... He recognised yeah. there was a... As you said, the word truth. He recognised there was some truth in what they were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to like it. It doesn't have to be your style to appreciate Correct. something. I mean, you know, famously, Bob Dylan is really not one of the world's greatest singers vocally. But when you get the emotion and... and mess, like, He is, yeah. absolutely. But there, there's a point where... It, do, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Exactly, it's, yeah. a, it's a bit like there's... Um, I've been listening to... I've been obsessed with a Pretty Things album, album called Parachute lately. Yeah, and there's a couple... Friends. Oh, just fantastic stuff. I'll and never I mean, see it again. I know that much. No, it's, it's, out of the shop. <laughs> it's already disappeared. <laughs> but um, the, the, what I really appreciate, or what I was really noticing, like listening to it again and again and again, which I have been the last couple of weeks, he's, the, the guy's got so many different voices. He sounds like Paul McCartney in one, he sounds like somebody else. And then there's a couple of tunes where he's just almost deliberately out of key and screeching and wailing. And you know what? It's fantastic. Yeah, It's fantastic. Yeah. And I was just saying to the missus the other day, you, you don't need to have the perfect harmony. It doesn't have to be in tune or anything to get the message, to get the passion across. It's very emotive stuff. And it, it depends on what you're looking for, but it's fantastic. As long stuff. as it's authentic, isn't it? Yes. That's yeah. really all you need. Yeah, that's it. It's the authenticity of it. Yeah. I remember I, I've, I've played on some, some weird sessions and certainly I've listened to some weird bands. I mean, Captain Beefheart with, with, with Frank Zappa. <laughs> and that's off the wall, you know, but I, yeah. I loved it. But uh, um, I remember getting uh, a call to play with a, when I was living in London getting a, a call to play with a punk band and uh, I said what the hell you know everybody all the serious musicians were knocking the punks well the punks were as truthful as you can get I mean that was Definitely. truthful music Yeah. when you listen to uh, the Sex Pistols great album it's like there's nothing tighter now I know <laughs> bass, bass and the guitar are so tight it's played by the same guy anyway but uh, it's so tight it's just ridiculous people thought uh, you know uh, Chris Bedding had played it it was so good um, but it, it was them but I got this call to play in ca- the castle in Child's Hill and the band was called Dizzy Lizard and the Nolan says, the, and Dizzy Lizard and the Nolan Brothers and it was off the wall I mean this was nuts <laughs> only time in my, only time in my life I broke two strings I mean I never really <laughs> I, I, it was it was competing you know it was just you know this was about oh. competing they opened up with a song by the sex I think by uh, 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 may have been 
Holiday in Cambodia or something. Yeah. Was, you know yeah, that one uh, by... Um, Dead Kennedys. Uh, Dead Kennedys. Yeah. Uh, and, and they also did uh, Bodies by the... Yeah. And this was, you know, how hard can you hit this base? You know, it was, <laughs> it was uh, but it was truthful. I remember doing a, a session for Wrigley Spearman Gum. Uh, what? You know, everybody, everybody wants to be a session player. You know, I mean, everybody says, you know, all the session players—they're the top guys. You want to be a session player? So I said, yeah, I want to be a session player. So I got this call from the fixer. And he said, uh, there's a, a session going in, uh, in, I think it was Trend Studios or Lombard in Dublin. He said, and I said, who's on it? And he said, Jim Farley is on it and the, the drummer from, from uh, Metropolis. And all these were, uh, these were like all like serious, serious mm-hmm. players. And this was my first foray into, the, into playing on the, 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 on the session scene. And... Uh, Jim Doherty, who had won the Montreux Jazz Festival with, with Louis Stewart, you know, all of these guys. <laughs> were, the, the, um, you could say there were no slouches, these fellows. Yeah. And uh, so they said, well, we're going to do this thing for Wrigley's Spearmint Gum, and we've got, we're going to do five styles, the same song, five different ways. So it's going to be pop, country, uh, jazz, uh, whatever. It had five styles. And the last style they were going to do was a, was a punk version. Now, these guys, as I say, could play anything. And they and they did it. And I was saying to myself, I hope and keep up with these fellas because they are that good. And when the jazz thing came in, I mean, they were just beautiful, you know. And I, everything that I learned from Cranston King, I had my little, you know, the swing. and uh-huh. Brilliant. And so they said, right, we better finish this one. Now, we do this punk one. And... Eamon McCann actually was playing guitar. He's a great player. He played with the loads and loads of bands, a lot of sessions, and also with the the the, the Dubliners for years <laughs> uh, on acoustic. And uh, when they started to play the the punk stuff, they played. They thought it was just let's play badly and and fast. And I remember thinking, will I will I speak up here? You know, because I mean, am I going to be out of turn or out of turn here? So I thought this is this is not right, and I said uh, to Jim Doherty, "Excuse me, Mister Doherty, said, but this isn't this isn't punk." And he said, "He said, well, you tell us then." He said, "What what what should we do? Because these guys are great because they listen to you." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I said, "Well, first of all, I said, you know, you have to have feeling." Uh, fair enough. You're going to play it fast. That's fine. I said, but you have to be spot on. Uh, uh, and and I just but I said. The, the one thing you have to have in this is truth and sincerity. And you have to play. I said, just try and remember how you played when you were 15. I said, and, and yeah. punch it. And they got it. I remember it just turned out so well. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> man. Brilliant. But, but so anybody who disparages punk music yeah. or anything, because it cleaned all the cobwebs out. You had great, great yeah. players. You had great musicians like Rod Stewart prancing around in a pair of pink tights. And you think, <laughs> what the hell has happened to, to pop music? You know, yeah, I, mean, yeah, yeah. I, I loved Rod, Rod Stewart when he was playing with Jeff Beck and, you know, the truth and when he was doing mm-hmm. stuff, people get ready and all that. Yeah. <laughs> And some of the faces stuff, but not when he was. Do you think I'm sexy? God, you know, I think it's yourself. You know what's happening here to this great player. Uh, so, punk came along and just cleaned out all the cobwebs. And, yeah, and it made made way then for for great bands like the Police and yeah, yeah, bands like that. And you too, of course. 
So and it's the same way with, with music, but, you know, I hated the 80s. I have to say I hated it because, you know, it became uh, um, producers' uh, um, stuff, you know. Uh, they, they had a Fairlight keyboard player, which was costing the, uh, cost you 30 or 40 grand at the time. And you had great bands and great guitar players like Alan Murphy playing Go West and people. But it was all manufactured, quantized, all this stuff. Stock Aiken and Waterman. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Using auto tune and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas, uh, as you said, you know, it's, you know, I, I'd rather hear a out of tune if he's, you know, if it's going to be, it's going to mm-hmm, be. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what it needed to happen is to go back, strip it all back to the bare bones, just let some fellow walk out on stage uh, with an acoustic guitar and build it from there again. It has to be built up again, the whole well, thing. You've had a bit of that with people like Ed Sheeran or uh, Jerry Cinnamon. Jerry yeah. Cinnamon, of Jerry course, Cinnamon, is completely yeah. different from Ed Sheeran. But, yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, have you heard of Jerry Cinnamon? No, I haven't heard him. Well, he's a guy in, in the UK, he's from Glasgow, and uh, he does very little advertising. He does yeah. very little PR, refuses to give interviews no mostly. So it's the antithesis of PR. It's counterintuitive PR mm-hmm. to the degree that he sells out every gig. His records sell oh, like, oh, you cannot yeah. get them. He could fill any stadium. He stadium no but he's just on his one man, one, man, one, one acoustic guitar. guitar. Yeah. No band, no fancy lights, no dancers, no nothing. And, and, he, and he sings in the, in the Glasgow vernacular. Yes, yeah, very, very deliberately. Very and deliberately. honestly, the whole place is just bouncing. Yeah, it's, I, it's, I, love, I, I love that idea. Word. It's almost um, I'll have tribal. to you some links, Stephen, just because oh, I appreciate them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I, I love that. That's, that's, that's what needs, needs to be done. Yeah. And, you know, when you get somebody who's... There's no hiding place if you've got an acoustic guitar. There's, you know, you can't bluff... A tune. You can't bluff a melody. You can't. Yeah. You, know, you can't hide behind a wall of sound or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, and and then you can build on that. I, I remember one of the projects that Tony Garrity, uh, our guitar player with Miami, and I did. Uh, we he brought along an album called Super Sax Plays Bird, and what it was was orchestrated versions of all Charlie Parker's solos. And we were working on that. And whenever we'd be away in a hotel and on a stayover, you know, we would, we would, uh, the hotel in the bedroom, we would be working on these things. He was a big, big Charlie Christian fan. And yeah. big, uh, obviously, uh, uh, Jungle Reinhardt and all of these great players. Oh, so yeah. there's always room, you know, no matter what you've got to do, whether you're playing in a, a wedding band or whatever, you know, you should never lose track of the fact that, you know, that the main thing, I turned 70 in January and, and, and I have to say, you know, I, I've I learned every single day. And so if I turn on a, a, an ABBA track or an ABBA album, as, as you said, Bob, like, listen to the, the quality, listen to, you know, the, how, you know, the way they use the sus fours and the way that everybody moves up or the, and the, uh, if they're in C, they move up to an F and the bass player stays in the C or yeah, the other yeah, way around, yeah. all of these things. Yeah. We weren't aware of, you know, until you hear, because they're classically trained. Uh, yeah. People, yeah. Uh, ah. Well, they're, they're, it's almost, I found listening to the likes of ABBA, it's very, regardless of whether you like ABBA or not, it's it's very instinctive. The melodies are are natural, aren't they? Well, I, you know, I I, I, I I bumped into ABBA once in, 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 in 1975, <laughs> um, in the Hotel, and... Um, you know, they had this aura about them. You know, they they just had this. It was it was it wasn't manufactured. It was just something that had come together, uh, uh, and 
somebody said, somebody said, uh, oh, I, I, you know, I, I don't like that music. I don't like Gab. I'm a serious player. I, I, I said to them, well, I tell you what, just I'll just write one of their songs. Write a hit like that. Just one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, absolutely. And, uh, and, but they uh, did write their, well it was uh, one of the guys that wrote all their they, they wrote their own stuff didn't oh, they? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah they wrote their own stuff oh yeah, yeah. so yeah. I mean it's not as if we're, we're talking about these manufactured bands and stocking oh, no, they played those, those guys those yeah. guys did it themselves they sang they played they wrote yeah. um, it was their yeah. stuff from the heart yeah and those two guys were great singers I mean oh yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah anybody so, anybody listening might think we've got a heap of ABBA we were trying to offload here but uh, we do <laughs> we do <laughs> we, we, we met we better mention something really heavy then you know uh, Grand Funk we love Grand Funk Railroad oh, yes, Grand yes, Funk Railroad and we've got plenty of those as well we've got some of them alright <laughs> oh, give us back credibility we say, we, <laughs> Tell finish on Grand Funk <laughs> totally Steve well, can I just ask are you a vinyl fan buddy do you collect oh, yeah. records as I, I, well? I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm vinyl fan, but I've got a good enough imagination to stick on a CD and pretend it's vinyl. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I envy you. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah, it comes from it comes from from playing to uh, when you can't hear yourself and you pretend you're in tune. Ah, you know, well, yeah. <laughs> brilliant. The great pretender. I love Absolutely. it. How big's your collection then? Um, hundreds, I, thousands. I, I, I'm not really strange. My wife is, likes music better than I do. I have a love hate relationship with music. You know, sometimes I think I hate it. Uh-huh. Uh, it annoys the hell out of me. It's like you know, it's it's like uh, um, it, I, I I can't honestly say that I, I that that I, I I listen to I listen to every style. I listen to most styles, but you have to be in the humour to listen to certain styles. Definitely. Yeah, I definitely. love I love classical music. I, I was there was a man called Janu Gallard. He was the the head of I think it was Polydor Polygram, one of those big companies. Um, he was he was he was a concert pianist as well, and uh, I was out to 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 have breakfast with him one one time. We were doing a project. We were actually had come back from a tour with uh, Simply Red. Um, I had one of our bands was 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 touring with them. Mick Hucknell was very good to them actually, uh, and so we were having breakfast down in Chiswick where Januk lived and uh, he went up to the counter to, to, I don't know, to get the tea or whatever it was in this little cafe and his phone rang and um, it was uh, it was uh, Pavarotti on the phone <gasps> and I, I saw the name coming up on the phone I thought is somebody kidding us you know <laughs> I answered and 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 I got this uh, this big voice in the phone you know uh, and uh, and I said uh I don't think you're you're calling me. I said, you know, I think you probably want to want your man. He was the head of the the, the classical division of the thing at the time. Yeah, and this big laugh. So I got to 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 talk to Pavarotti for about. Really? That's fantastic, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Janu so, uh, gave me this massive collection of, of the best of classical stuff, you know, which I had been exposed to when I was a kid anyway. But I love Bach and, and I love uh, uh, everything, you, you name it. I, one of my favourite bands in the world has to be has to be Andrea Rio. I mean, just love the thing when I see them, you know, the, 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 the whole spe- spectacle that they do. I'd love to go and see one of 
their concert sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite yeah. a big thing. Yeah, the Dutch violinist, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's he's pretty big worldwide, but it is. Yeah. It's yeah. it's a whole. It's almost yeah. a bit a bit, bit theatre music in theatre. There's like it's a proper show of it all, isn't it? It, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think yeah. I, yeah. So you know, the worst thing you can do for yourself is to turn your nose up at at, at any kind of music without listening to it. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Agreed. It's all it's all doing something for you. Yeah. Yeah. Except ask? except except rap. I draw the line. There, yeah. We'll, we'll have to edit that out. I'm always joking. Can I just ask you another question? Obviously, you're used to playing music and you're used to jamming, and you're obviously used to doing live gigs. And then when you talk about having a record collection as well and how you listen to music, but what do you think about going to gigs and being on the opposite end? So as opposed to being the guy on the on the stage looking down, how does it feel being the man in the gig looking up and seeing these? guys perform is that something oh, you enjoy or absolutely i do yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I, I i love i love listening to whether it's new bands or old bands i mean uh, there's a there's a band that i absolutely love now they are you know they, they, they do a strange thing but they're on on uh, youtube and uh, they have something special uh, they're called pomplamoose uh, I, I listen to them because they 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 do something and there's another there's another couple of big bands i like when I see there's an effort put into something, uh, and there's a, a you know an honesty in the music, whether it's some fella playing an acoustic or whether it's it doesn't matter, you know. Um, and the great thing about about having the internet and having YouTube and stuff like that is that you can go back and you can listen to Duke Ellington or, you know, oh, yeah, maybe, you yeah. know, uh, the man that I think is 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 the. Uh, the father of the blues, I honestly think, is Count Basie. You know, I yeah, just yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So, so you can, you can, we're spoiled for choice now. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, so I just can't wait for you guys to start issuing all that stuff on on vinyl, and we're, uh, yeah. we're all laughing then. Yeah. <laughs> Give us a year. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, Stephen, you've been very, very generous with your time, and I know that you've got another thing coming up. So, I'm conscious yeah, of your got, time as well. I've got my friends from New York here at, at five o'clock. So, right. yeah, okay, Baffled. So, well, listen, um, thank you so much for agreeing to doing this because uh, I know that I've always been impressed by your love of your passion for music. And when I read your book, it was like two books. The first half being your your absolute love of music, and mm-hmm. all our yeah. people, all our people, our listeners, our, our customers, and our friends. Yeah. Will all love that because that's what that's what we all connect yeah, to. Definitely. We all feel the same about music and about many of us play instruments. Mm-hmm. You know, but even people that don't, they're, they're listeners without listeners. There's no point in playing an instrument often. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's it's been a fascinating discussion with you as always. And I'm just I could can't help but laugh when I see behind you the records that you got. It's too good. You. It's too good because I, I've preached that record so many times to so many yeah. people. So <laughs> I just want to speak to people that are, that are passionate about music. You well, know, that's what it's all about. I think the real thing is uh, the difference working in a, a music shop in a record store is is the people that buy records have got a lot more of a commitment. They know the financial commitment. There's other commitments that come with it, as in storage as well, which you may laugh off, but it becomes a huge problem. You're talking about experience there, since you started working with us. I've definitely got problems <laughs> I didn't have before, you know, but um, <laughs> it's just that a real, um, we were even talking to a fantastic chap, uh, Mark Miller, who's obviously in the world of comics, but the, 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 the likely sort of the shared sort of thing between collectors, uh, whether it's comics, whether it's records or anything, 
They'll, they'll commit anything to it. They'll spend any amount of money for the right thing. For the right and they'll thing. love yeah. it. They'll yeah. love it. They'll yeah. cherish it. They'll care for it. And that's effectively what you're doing. Yeah. Um, they, they say there's a, what's the watch brand? Patek Philippe. Um, I think one of the sales uh, logos for it at the bottom is you never, ever own a Patek Philippe. You're just looking after it for the next generation, <laughs> and that's very much like records. I agree you never you. I fully own them, yeah, like you know. You, you don't. You don't. Yeah. When you when you die or in your will, say right, burn the lot. They'll <laughs> end up going somewhere. They get handed down over decades, which is beautiful. It's one beautiful. or two I might burn, but <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got a friend. Uh, I've got a friend called Earl Oaken. E A R L O K I N. Look him up. He's the largest collection. Uh, um, next to the BBC of 78s um, in, in Britain. He's, uh, I think he still lives down Portobello Road, but he uh, he's the guy, he's a fabulous musician. He toured with Paul McCartney. That's how we, that's how McCartney got our album, the Crack album. And uh, um, But Earl Oaken is uh, uh, he's a very eccentric man. He does all the old, old jazz stuff, but his collection is just phenomenal. Uh, uh, look him up. Uh, yeah, yeah, we will do. Definitely, you'll find, you'll find him a fascinating character yeah. as well. Maybe put you in touch with him if you, if you want to. If you want to know, but he's well, McCartney. That'd be amazing, McCartney's buddy. Yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. also, uh, maybe if we're, if if the lads are in Scotland, Tom Jennings has bought Paul McCartney's bus. You know that Bob? He's bought the the Wings tour bus, nineteen seventy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. What? So. Uh, yeah. Um, so if we're up there, you could maybe do some something with with uh, we're going to put oh, a lot of dance together, yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. Open top, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic, absolutely brilliant. Open top in Scotland, that's good too, right? <laughs> Enjoy the views and the sounds. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Stephen, thanks again, my friend. We'll let you get on. To yeah, absolute pleasure, so. sir. And, thanks uh, so much. Take care of yourselves. All right, you too. All the best to you. Sir. Bye. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye, Stephen. Well, I thought that was fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So many great stories there about so many people we've, us in the music business, meaning us in the shop, have heard so much about. It's always great to hear stories about people who we often only know through their records. It's great to see how they lived outside the record, because obviously they had lives outside the record. So that's wonderful. And Stephen, of course, is such a consummate gentleman and musician that it's a pleasure to actually speak to him. Oh, absolutely. Stephen's a proper professional, whether he's professional musician, professional producer. He's a professional person all round. Um, what a guy and what a career he's had. And I love to see how he's had the career he's had and developed it onto where he is today. Really impressive. A, a never-ending energy for the right goal. Love it. Yeah, a real inspiration, actually, because um, when it comes to music, he's one of these guys that when I was growing up in the music, when I was growing up in a band and stuff, you'd always look to guys who really had it all and they would be your role models and there wasn't a hellish lot of them around and it's kind of thing where you look and you listen to Steve and you think well it's guys like that that we'd have been looking up to and still do I can't begin to tell you what a privilege it's been to have Stephen on our show 
We're just a wee record shop up here in Aberdeen, but it seems to be worth doing something right to attract such wonderful musicians, great people uh, like Stephen to come on and say hello to us. We're really grateful you gave us your time. It's been an absolute privilege and learning a lot. And as a musician or a wannabe musician, uh, it's been absolutely fantastic to hear all these stories about learning songs and having to, you know, audition and all that. That's something that will cut with every single musician listening to this. So thank you so much, Stephen. An absolute privilege. So it's that time again, vinylers and vinylettes. Thank you once again for listening in. Really appreciate it. And by all means, if you want to do anything else, like subscribe or all that, you can do all that. But most importantly, just listen and enjoy. And so vinylers and vinylettes, only remains for me to say, wax on, wax off.